So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, I will read through verse 18, if you would follow along. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel among you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So the rationale for this series, we're in the middle of a series on the gospel. And the rationale for this is the two values or goals that I have sought to set out there for our church are unity and discipleship. And both of these are meaningless unless the gospel is central. Unity in the gospel brings unity in all other important things. If we can get that right, if that can be the center of our hearts, then unity flows in all the secondary issues. The gospel is also essential for discipleship. What are we trying to counsel and lead and exhort others toward? It's conformity to Christ in the gospel. It's not a new type of legalism that we're trying to get everyone else to do. There's no cookie-cutter Christianity. We want people to be transformed by the gospel. And also, one of the motivations in this is pastoral care. We must understand the gospel. The gospel is not just the front door to all the blessings of God. It is. But the gospel is what we desperately need every day. 
Paul says that you are being saved by the gospel. You stand in the gospel every day. It is your very life for each day of the Christian life. It's not just the front door. It's all of it. So when you're helping hurting people or talking with people with questions or fears or concerns, it ultimately all comes back to the gospel. It sets the agenda for helping each other and encouraging each other every day. And obviously, each sermon I preach, I try to help us understand some aspect of the gospel, some building block or some implication. But what can happen in the Christian life is that the gospel can continually become that assumption that we make that we're all on the same page with. We assume the gospel, and then we go out into, well, what's next? We got the gospel down, what's after that? Why do we do that? Why do we push the gospel to the back burner and make it just what we assume we all agree on? Well, we're going to see some of the reasons for that today. But we can't let that happen. We can't let the gospel be an assumption, an unspoken assumption. So every sermon of this series, we're going to begin with answering the same question. What is the gospel? And why should we begin it the same way every time? I could just tell you the gospel at the beginning, and then we could talk about aspects of it through the rest. But we're going to start the same way every time. What is the gospel? And the reason for that is because of Romans 10:17. For many of you, this should be your life verse, if you're the sort of person that has life verses. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. If you're encountering or dealing with people who are not believers, if you're counseling or working on people to come to faith, this should be your confidence. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The phrase that Paul uses in uh, basically meaning the same thing as the gospel. You can't hear it enough. You can't speak it enough. And you can use different words and phrases to illustrate what it is you mean. But you've got to continually assault unbelief with the gospel. Faith comes through hearing. So, that's why on the back of your handout, I've sought to give you many different ways to speak of the gospel. And I'll just read Romans 3, 21-26, just in Paul's own words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, as you're looking at the back of the handout I've given you, if you've received the emails of the family devotional, we're just combining those together in this handout. So, If you want to get together with your family or by yourself or meet together with another family in this church and just discuss those questions at the end, feel free. 
This is something we must exhort one another in all the time. So, we come to verse 16 and the main question for the day. This is great news. The word gospel itself means good news. And as we looked at the different glorious aspects of the gospel last week, hopefully you understood and appreciated how good and grand and magnificent this news is. That God has decided that He will not deal with us according to our sins. That's fantastic news. And so we come to verse 16 and Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would you be ashamed? Why would the potential for shame even be there for a message so good? This is how you need to, to you know, attack the Bible every time you read it with questions. Why is he saying it this way? Why does he feel the need to say this? It's good news, Paul. Of course you're not ashamed of it. The Bible's never redundant. And if it is, there's a reason. This is the most amazing news. This is the news of salvation. So why would Paul feel the need to say that he's not ashamed? He's writing to a strong and stable church. Their faith has been proclaimed in all the world. He's writing to potential ministry partners. He's essentially writing for himself a letter of recommendation to gain their support so that he can go on a missionary journey to Spain. So he believes that they're, they're mature in some sense. And so why is he saying to them, oh, by the way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? He's already called himself an apostle. It would be ridiculous to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and yet be ashamed of the gospel. So on its face, it seems at least unnecessary for him to say this. So what does he mean by ashamed? Let's just ask that question. Hopefully this will give us an idea of why he's saying this. Is he just talking about embarrassment? Um, When I was much younger, I was part of a family bluegrass band and played the banjo. And no, I will not play the banjo for you because it's very rusty. Um, and my dad was the leader of said family bluegrass band. And when your dad, who's very type B personality, like the, the quintessential type B personality, uh, and he's the leader of your band, you have many opportunities to feel embarrassed. And so you're standing before a larger church or at a nursing home, and your dad, basically in the tradition of the Smothers Brothers, for those of y'all who know exactly what that is, uh, we had people come and ask us if we were trying to essentially do the Smothers Brothers Act and know we're, we're trying to do serious things, but it's not working. And so the opportunities for being embarrassed were plentiful. And something broke in my brain where it's almost impossible for me to feel embarrassed anymore. And that's helpful for preaching. You know, I'm not scared to do this. I just can't feel embarrassed in most cases. I can feel embarrassed for you, but not really for myself anymore, because that broke being in a family bluegrass band with my dad. So is that what Paul is saying, though? I'm just not embarrassed by the message of the gospel. I don't think so. I think there's something a little bit different, deeper going on here. Paul uses this word in a couple of different places. One of them 
2 Timothy 1.16, and he says that Onesiphorus, his friend, was not ashamed of his chain. So basically what they did back in the Roman Empire, when you were a prisoner, um, you didn't like wear handcuffs. They had a chain that a blacksmith would essentially fasten to you permanently. And you'd go around with said chain until you faced trial or whatever, then they could eventually take it off of you as a permanent fixture until you were either acquitted or punished. And so Onesiphorus is not ashamed of his chain. Basically what that did, what that signified in the minds of people, oh, this is a condemned man. This is a criminal. This is a bad person. Why are you hanging out with this bad person? You could lose respect. You could lose esteem. You could lose uh, appreciation in your society by affiliating yourself with a man who wore a chain, a prisoner. The best way to summarize this, this is ashamed of the gospel, is, is to say this. If a person who's ashamed of the gospel would say something like this, I don't want to be identified with the gospel because I would lose something important to me. So Onesiphorus isn't ashamed of Paul, even though he might lose respect. He might lose honor in his community. He might lose friends for associating with Paul because of his chain. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not afraid to be affiliated with this, even though I might lose something. And he did lose many things. This is echoed in what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are you when people hurl all sorts of insults against you and persecute you for my name's sake. Blessed is the one who is not ashamed of me. So let's take a deeper look at why he says this. We're going to look at seven different reasons that one might be ashamed of the gospel. And understand, this, this might sound heavy to some of you, but hidden within each of these reasons that might cause us to feel shame for the gospel are two things. One is counseling us away from not looking at the gospel in all its beauty and glory, and then counseling us to seeing it in its full beauty and glory and being encouraged and changed by it. So the first reason the gospel might cause shame is this. The gospel presupposes bad news. The gospel is not good news all by itself. It is only good news if there is bad news, too. And this will be the one that we spend the majority of the time on, so make sure you pay attention to this one. And the reason is, this is where many of us get tripped up, I think. What is the bad news that the gospel presupposes? Everyone agrees, for the most part, that something's wrong with the world. You ask the Hindu, the Buddhist, the, the Muslim, you ask Oprah. Everyone agrees that something's wrong with the world. Because you have sickness, death, fractured relationships, depression, sorrow, tragedy, and on and on we could go. Everyone agrees something's wrong. But what has really gone wrong 
Is it mainly that there is sickness, death, tragedy, sorrow, depression? Is that the main problem, that these things exist? What is the most essential problem with the world? We read it in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The bad news is that we have sinned. We are unrighteous, and because of that, God has holy wrath against us. Our problem, our, the bad news, is that we are not all free to do whatever it is we want to do with no consequences. We were made. We were created. Made by a God who has commanded righteousness because He is holy. And we, all of us, have rebelled and demanded that this God have nothing to do with us. That's what sin is. And we have thus given the highest and worst insult against the best and most powerful being that could possibly exist. Therefore, the right and just and holy and pure thing for him to do is to have wrath against sinners. It's not just a f- he's not just frustrated. He's not just angry. He's not just in a fit. This is holy. This is pure. This is just. In the Old Testament, when the Bible speaks of God's wrath, the imagery is that his nostrils burn. Rage against sin because of what it is. God isn't flying off the handle. And we'll talk about this in a bit. You can't fully appreciate this bad news until you realize the reason the wrath is there in the first place is that we have sinned. We have become unrighteous. Exodus 32.10 Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. If we neglect this, or if we don't think about it, we don't talk about it, what do we lose? We could spend all day answering that question, but I'll give you four things that will happen if we neglect this, if we don't talk about it, if we don't think about it. Four things. The first thing that happens is that we stop sounding like the Bible. If you don't talk about the wrath of God, if you don't talk about His just and holy wrath against sin, You stop sounding like the Bible and you stop sounding like Jesus. John 3. Beginning in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest 
his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then down to verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you don't talk about it, if you don't mention it, if you don't think about it, you stop sounding like the Bible and you stop sounding like Jesus. Do you pick and choose? You become a religion to yourself and you create a Christ of your own design if you pick and choose which Bible verses are most important to you. We have a Bible within the Bible. Can't do that. The second thing that happens if we don't talk about this, if we don't think about it, we lose the hope for the persecuted and suffering servants of God. It may sound a little odd to you, but this is the hope mentioned. If you go to uh, Psalm 18, you don't have to turn there yourself. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. Psalm 18, 6 through 12. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He makes darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The reason some of us recoil at the imagery and the flavor of the revelation to John is because we don't really want to think about that God is a God of wrath. And that he comes in the end to exact vengeance on his enemies. And that is hope for the persecuted and beleaguered one who hopes in God. That God is going to come and make things right. And part of what that means is that his wrath is poured out in the winepress of his wrath. You will be vindicated, servant of God. third thing that happens this is the most significant if we don't think about or talk about or try to explore and understand what it means for God to be a God of wrath against sin is that the cross becomes unnecessary or at least a wild reaction an overreaction so much of the theology of the cross becomes Meaningless or even horrible. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 and verse 10. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The beauty and glory and helpfulness of the cross is built on the idea that this is God's wrath being dealt with in that moment, in that horrendous moment on the tree. And it's just a complete overreaction and completely unnecessary if there's no wrath involved. And also, lastly, if there's no wrath, if we don't think about it, if we don't appreciate this righteous and holy response of God to sin, hell is an overreaction. And we don't talk about it like Jesus did, and we don't warn people like the, like the Bible does. Romans 2.8 But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's an overreaction, and it's, it's, it's horrible to think about if, if, if it's not because of the holy, righteous, just wrath of God in response to sin. So how do you give it its proper place? We're not supposed to try to convert people merely on fear and judgment. Though there is a proper place for that. You should warn people. Jesus didn't make a mistake when he talked about hell. And no one in the Bible talks more about hell than Jesus. And God didn't make a mistake when he instructed the prophets to warn people what would happen if they didn't repent. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to think of this? How do we properly appropriate the bad news of the gospel in our hearts? First, has to do with beliefs. Grace and mercy are flattened and cheapened if God is not a consuming fire. If there is no wrath against unrighteousness, against sin, then the grace you have received, the mercy you have received, is just cheap and small. If you're going to be motivated and moved by God's kindness and His mercy and grace, you can't unless you fully see the purity of His justice and of His burning hot wrath against sin. And lastly, with beliefs, how we, have, we fully appropriate this is we don't understand our sin and how horrible it is if we don't fully appreciate God's wrath. His wrath and His response to sin tells us how horrible sin is. The horror of the universe is sin, brothers and sisters. It's not hell. Hell is the right response of God to sinners. And it shows how man-centered we are that we cringe more when we read those uncomfortable passages about the warnings, even from Jesus' mouth, that when, as opposed to when we read about our own sin. When we read those, we'll say, yeah, but you know, no one's perfect. Well, 
The horror is sin. Here are some actions. This is how you fully enact this. Do you really believe that this, the gospel, that God providing a way of escape from his wrath through the cross is what's really going on in the universe? That this is it? The reason Jesus, the most valuable person in all existence, gave his life was to save people from the terrible, perfect wrath of God. If Jesus gave his life in this venture, ought you to do the same? We need to use our lives to bring people out of the destiny of wrath. And God has provided a way. He has made a way at great cost to himself. We've got to find however we can do this, using everything that he's given to us should be used for the kingdom so that people can be spared God's wrath. Don't ignore the truth of God's wrath. Wrath. Here are a few personal encouragements. Holiness or repentance is essentially agreeing with God about your sin. The path of holiness and repentance must include a proper appreciation of how horrible sin is. If you think it's just a mistake or the, cause, the, the result of ignorance or, oh, I didn't receive the right training... It's an opportunity for growth. Holiness is cut off for you. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. You must look at the cross and see in the cross God's right and holy response to sin and how horrible it is when we break faith with Him or else holiness isn't possible for you from the heart. You might have the external behaviors of holiness, but not for the right reasons. Also, here's another benefit of seeing it this way, that this God... This one that we're talking about, the God who has holy, just, perfect, pure wrath against sin is the one who has dealt with his wrath, satisfied that wrath in the cross and made it possible for you to draw near. The level of grace and forgiveness, the stunning nature of forgiveness is just lost on us if we don't understand how much God spent to make forgiveness possible. For you to realize, even if you lose everything, if you still have God, this God, this one who has gone to such great lengths to bring you near, that He has done so. Another benefit to fully appreciate God's wrath and how much it cost Him to deal with His wrath forgiveness. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We don't have a leg to stand on, brothers and sisters. Harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, anger. 
needing to get recompense from someone, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The only person who owned everything and and no one can give him anything, he pays everything so that you could be forgiven. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You don't have any leg to stand on. And nor do I. Second cause of shame for the gospel. Don't freak out. That that was the longest, so we'll, we'll get through the rest of these in due time. The gospel will appear as foolishness to the natural person. The gospel is spiritual. And on our own, we don't like it. And we dismiss it as foolishness. Just a few samples from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 12. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what about the message of the gospel is foolishness? I'll just give you one because we're going to try to talk about this as many times as we can, is that this exchange of sin for righteousness is foolishness. That through faith, through trust in Christ, God would take all of your sin and credit it to Christ, crush him in your place, and credit to you all of Christ's righteousness. That is a foolish message to one who cannot appreciate the workings of God. That mysterious grand exchange that is the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, that we receive God's very own righteousness through faith in Christ. That, that's, it's just a foolish idea. Unless you know God. Unless you are beginning to be given the mind of God in the, in the Spirit, by the Spirit. And here's where this crops up. When people reject our message, the message of the gospel, and they think it's silly... We often try another way. We try to dress it up and make it not so foolish. But that feeling of folly is part of God's design for how he's going to save people. In the wisdom of God, God is saving people through the foolishness of what we preach. So that the fact that it's not matching up in their minds and it kind of alerts them to the fact that this isn't all making sense. That's part of God's design for how he's going to save people. Look at it again, if you're there. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel isn't literally folly. It's not a stupid message. It is the truth of the universe. 
There's nothing foolish about it, but to the natural person, it appears foolish. And it is through that realization that this doesn't match up with what I've believed. It doesn't make sense. That's part of how he's saving the world. And so to remove that or try to make the message of the gospel appeal to natural people is to remove its saving power. So don't do that. This jarring, otherworldly, mysterious, radically non-man-centered, offensive flavor of the gospel, this folly and stumbling block message is precisely how God is designed to make it effective for salvation to those who believe. If you want to see this really, really clearly, go to 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6. Second Corinthians four, one through six. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, clear, open, not holding any of the things that might be seen as foolishness back, an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. A clear, open statement of the truth, holding nothing back. That is the revelation of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You have to give that. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There's no other way. That's it. That which breaks the blindness is the open statement of the foolish gospel of Jesus. Not you being nice, not clever arguments, not trying to make a person feel valued, not by avoiding talking about the bad news, not by creating an easy path, or trying to hide other difficult things about our faith, but by an open, kind, patient, uncompromising statement of the truth. Third, the gospel is the most humbling message. There is no message more humbling or offensive to human pride than the gospel. There are tons of ways that you can see this. I love to use the Old Testament wherever I can. You can look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2, beginning in verse 11. He's talking about the great and awesome day of the Lord. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, 
The lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Verse 17, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The gospel is an assault against the pride of man precisely because in the gospel we see God's glory and majesty most. God is most clearly revealed in the gospel. And when you see him clearly in his justice and purity and holiness, you can't be proud. That moment for you is the crumbling of your pride. Only those who have completely abandoned trust in themselves, abandoned pride, will be saved through this great and awesome day of the Lord. Also from Luke chapter 9, verse 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holds and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The message of Christianity, this is another way that it is an assault against the pride of man. We like our stuff. We like our inventions, our creativity, and all of the things in the world. The pride of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We love our stuff. And Jesus says, the way of following me is to deny yourself. Foxes have holds, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's why we have to reject every version of Christianity that softens the blow of this truth. You cannot serve God and money. No man can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or love the one and hate the other. That's it. That's an assault against our pride because we love our stuff. We love our comfort, we love our peace, we love the way things being the way we like them to be for peace or whatever style of life we have. And then Jesus says, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The flesh, and the pride of man does not like this message. And the gospel in Paul's day had already, already caused many to be ashamed because it meant abandoning the path of respect and honor in your society. If you wanted to be a respectable, honorable Jew, there was a clear path for that. And John was on, uh, Paul was on that path. He was excelling in Judaism beyond all of his peers. And then he says in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, if you want to read it later, that he counted all of that loss for the sake of Christ. The gospel looks at the best that man can do through organization, creativity, intelligence, religion, society, and says, yeah, so what? What does that have to do with the kingdom of God? What's the shame in this message? The shame or loss of respect is that if we insist on this life not being the full picture, and we insist that we shouldn't value what the world values and that we shouldn't fear what the world fears. We're beyond the reach of the enemy and we're beyond the reach of man. 
And this incites violence from the enemy and from the flesh. Isn't this what the story of Mordecai and Haman is teaching? When Haman would not bow, when Mordecai would not bow down to Haman, it caused rage. You fear God more than me. It sent him into an insane plot to destroy all the Jews in rage because he's out of my reach. Isn't this what Nebuchadnezzar made him so furious? Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Babylonian names, that when they said, no, we won't bow down to the things you value, we won't value the things you value, we won't give credence to the things that you say are important, violence, anger, fury from the world. This is the cause of shame for many who are truly following the Lord. The world doesn't like being condemned by our behavior when we follow the Lord. Fourth reason that the gospel can cause shame is that the gospel claims universality. The gospel claims that it is the only way to be saved and all other ways are not only false, but evil. saw this a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 4 when Peter says there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. This is it. There's one name. There's no other way. And then in Acts 17, Paul is preaching and then he says that Jesus has been appointed the one man by whom God will judge the entire world. One man, no other way. And then Jesus himself in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This might be the most offensive piece of the gospel message when you really get down to it. If you ever had conversations with non-believers or people who are doubting the faith, this piece is what seems to be the sticking point for so many. That Jesus claims to be the only way. It's not a fun thing to think about. But I want to give you some encouragement before we move on. For the believer, for your own heart, to counsel your own heart and how to appreciate this, that Jesus is the only way. The gospel is the only way that God has made for people to be saved. There's no other way. When Jesus prays in Gethsemane, if possible, let this cup pass from me. God's answer is essentially, I will help you by sending the angel, but there is no other way. It's not that God had a long list of possible ways whereby he would save mankind, whereby he would save you and me, and then picked a really narrow one with Jesus and decided to make that the way. This is the only way it could ever happen. If salvation is ever going to happen, it had to be in the death of Jesus Christ. That's it. If there were any other way, why in the world would God the Father design to send his son to the cross? Isn't that the point? We must repent 
and believe in Jesus because the only way God can pardon sinners eternally is in the death of Jesus Christ. For the non-believer, if you're speaking to non-believers or maybe you're in this room and you don't really buy into the gospel, that's okay. We're glad you're here. Here's a few things I want you to consider. If there's no meaningful requirement to be forgiven, then right and wrong are meaningless and God is a fraud. If there's no meaningful requirement or condition to be forgiven, if it's just, we're all forgiven, we're all going to make it, God is love, love wins, and hell is just an idea created by the early church, and it's going to all be okay, and we're all going to be happy together forever, then right and wrong are meaningless, and God is a fraud. Because then what does it matter if I go out and murder everyone? Eternally, it doesn't. Because there's no consequence, there's no requirement. But at the same time, any meaningful requirement on all of us, and we fail. If God made the requirement for forgiveness, just give me the proper thanks. Give me the proper thanks for what I've given you. Romans 1 tells us that we do not thank God properly. No one does. So make it, as, make it a wide and easy requirement as you want to. Just thank God properly. All of us fail. So, the gospel does the impossible. The gospel causes God to meet the full requirements himself in the person of Jesus. The requirements for forgiveness and reconciliation were him were so high that none of us could ever meet it. So in the gospel, Jesus meets all of those requirements. And then it's freely offered to those who will believe. So you see, it's not as offensive as it might sound that Jesus is the only way. That's infinitely good news that Jesus has met the requirements. And those who just trust in him for forgiveness and righteousness will receive all the blessings of salvation. And at the end of the day, the reason we might find this offensive that Jesus is the only way is we don't really realize how horrible our situation is. We don't realize how ruined and wrecked we are through sin. And so when we hear Jesus is the only way to be saved, our hearts recoil a little bit. I don't know, I might be ashamed of that piece of the message. I don't want to necessarily talk about that with a non-believer, friend or family or coworker. Because it's offensive. It might rub them the wrong way. It's because we don't really realize how ruined and wrecked our condition is. We're in such a bad situation that we don't even identify the way out. And when a rescuer comes and begins to free us from the horrible situation we're in, it causes us maybe a little pain and we say, I don't like this. Stop. Get away from me. And then he says, this is the only way you can be saved. And our response, because of how sin has affected our hearts, is we say that's not fair. Of course Jesus is the only way. Because sin is so terrible. The fifth reason that we can be ashamed of the gospel 
that might cause shame is that the gospel is such a message that if you accept its truth, it must become the most important thing about your life. There are many kinds of knowledge out there. I'm, I'm kind of a, a nerd or, or a geek, so I like to learn about space and galaxies and black holes, and I'm reading articles about things they're discovering now. I love all sorts of things. But there's a lot of knowledge out there that doesn't really change your life. What does it really affect about my life that there's a black hole at the center of our galaxy? Great, wonderful. I mean, it causes worship for the Christian, right? How great is God that there are these things out there that I can't even imagine that bend space and time and consume all of light? Like, that's, that's cool, but it doesn't really change my day to day. But there are types of truths that change everything. And the gospel is the highest. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He also says in Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Luke 14, 33. So therefore, if anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. In Romans 4, 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The gospel is such a message that since it's true, it demands everything. This might sound oppressive. This might sound controlling. I don't want to believe in the gospel because it demands all of me. It's taking everything. But realize this. If you, if you have really brought in the significance of the bad news, then the imagery Peter uses in his two letters is that of the ark. And the storm is coming. The flood is coming. And Jesus has been held out as the ark and here we have all of our stuff and our possessions and our time and our money and our energy. And as the waters are even rising, we're, we're running around looking where we might set it down so that it can be saved. And Jesus is there as the ark. He's been provided for you. So anything that you leave outside the ark is just destroyed. It's not going with you. Isn't this the point of Ecclesiastes? If there's nothing past the sun, then any accumulation, any fun that you have, any success that you have in your life, it's all just, just meaningless. So Jesus has been given as the way for all of your life to have meaning. To give purpose and significance to everything you do. But if it's true, that means that everything must be for him. You can't have your cake and eat it too here. The sixth reason that the gospel may cause us to be ashamed is that it is centered on the obscenity of the cross. The gospel is meaningless unless at the center of it we have God the Son being crushed and killed in our, in our place by God the Father. And that is offensive. If it's just Rome... 
If it's just Pontius Pilate, if it's just Herod, if it's just the Jews, and they did a horrible thing, in any analysis, they did a horrible thing, and if it's just that, and not God's design, we've lost the gospel. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. He became the curse. Jesus, taking on our sin, became the most reprehensible thing in the universe. And God crushed him. He poured out the cup of his wrath fully on him. And he drank it to the dregs. And this is horrifying. But it makes us realize the darkness and hideousness of our sin. That is what my sin deserved. And you who are dead in your trespasses and sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Who did the nailing? Of course it was the Roman soldiers. But it was God's design. God set the legal demands of the law against you aside by he himself nailing it to the cross. What was nailed? It wasn't like some list of our Sins, it was Jesus himself. So that God has essentially credited to him all of our sin and nailed him to the cross, crushing him in our place for our sins, satisfying his wrath. That's the heart of the gospel. And that's offensive. Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's a scandal. It's not just that Jesus is dying a martyr's death for a cause. It's not just that Jesus is a rescuer saving us and he has to give his life so that he can save us. It's not just that he is demonstrating his love for us. It's not just that he is setting the ultimate example for us. He willingly followed through with the plan made by the Father, Son, and Spirit for all time to be slaughtered in the place of his people so that we could be with him forever, marveling at the wisdom of this plan. The Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. What's the encouragement in this? If we keep the cross central, if we look at it, we don't turn away from it, we don't let it make us ashamed that that the Father, this is His design, and the Son willingly follows in the plan of the Father, taking on our sin and absorbing God's wrath. What's the benefit of that? Instead of being ashamed of it, Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If you've been given the Son of God, 
You've got everything. Through faith, you receive the Son of God, and because He owns everything through His vindication, His resurrection, it's all yours. The universe is yours in Christ. If you keep that central, that that is what is happening in the cross. The last reason that could cause shame of the gospel is that the heart of the gospel the heart of the gospel is that Jesus' righteousness is the only way you can be right before God. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. This message of the gospel forces us to look at our inadequacy and that we can't earn it. We can't be good enough. You can't be good enough. Yet we know, this is Paul in Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we also, who have believed in Christ, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You can't be justified by doing good. You can't stand right before God, even through your holiness that you live in after becoming a Christian. So what do we do with this? All of these heavy truths. These are the things that might cause us to turn away and be ashamed of the gospel. What I've tried to do is show you the beauty in the heart of them all. That if you look at it in full, it will sustain you. And if you're not in Christ, if you have not trusted in this message to be justified through faith in Jesus, today must be the day of salvation for you. As I said last week, stop playing games with the Almighty God. Seek refuge in His Son alone today. Father, thank You for the Gospel. Give us the courage of Your servant Paul. Seeing the Gospel in all its glory, with the good news and the bad news all together, help us not be ashamed. Let us boldly go with this full unchained, unadulterated gospel to the world. Knowing that through this message faithfully proclaimed, you will bring many to yourself. Please prepare the way before us by your spirit. Even in the conversations many of us will have after the conclusion of this service in this room. May today be the day of salvation. May we all be saved today, even as we are being saved through the gospel. In Jesus' name.